After a minister had preached a very convicting sermon on pride, a woman who had heard the sermon was obviously very convicted and waited to reveal some of these things to the minister. She came to him and said, I need to confess a great sin to you. And the minister said, well, what sin is that? And she said, it's a sin of pride. I can spend hours sitting in front of the mirror just admiring my beauty. And the minister said, oh, listen, that's not the sin of pride. That's the sin of imagination. And <laughs> you see, Paul, it's not a, not a true story. Uh, Paul... Paul had much reason to boast, and this was not because of his imagination, but rather because of the revelation that he's received from the Lord. Paul was taken up to heaven, and he heard things that was just unlawful for him to even pass on and share with other people, as we read at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 12 last week. So Paul's had much reason to boast, especially when compared up against these false apostles that were causing a ruckus now in the church of Corinth, trying to discourage people and take them away from what Paul had shared with them, trying to discredit Paul. And they were just causing a problem. And they were trying to say he's not a real apostle. And yet Paul's showing to them that he is a genuine apostle. He's been used by God. He's bearing in his body, he writes in, in Galatians, bearing the marks, it says, of the Lord and his service to the Lord. Paul's been through it all. He's seen it all. Yet in all of this, Paul doesn't want to come across as better than others. He doesn't want to try to elevate himself. In fact, we read, we read last week at the end of our study in verse 6, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul says, now whatever I'm saying, I hope people aren't trying to put me on a pedestal. That's not where Paul wanted to be. This is why when he talked about this heavenly visit at the beginning of chapter 12 he refers to himself in the third person he's like i don't even want to identify that that was me lest people begin to go "Ooh, paul you were in heaven whoa let's let's lift up paul here paul refers as though it's another person but now in verse 7 when he begins to talk about the sufferings and the infirmities that came after that he now identifies that it's him because now as he talks about his suffering it's an opportunity to boast so Paul's learned the importance of humility, but it's also something the Lord has had to kind of help him in, as we will see. And it's something I think we all, if we're honest with ourselves, need a little bit of help with when it comes to pride and walking in humility. Because you see, it was pride that led the enemy, Satan, to fall. It was pride that led him to want to be worshipped, which eventually led to his fall. And you can bet it's pride by which the enemy is going to come and attack us and try to move us into that arena of thinking more of ourselves. In fact, it's been said that pride is the ground on which all other sin grows. I think you could contribute most sin to the root of pride. The thing about pride is that the proud person doesn't recognize that they're proud. They're usually the last to see it because it's their pride that blinds them from thinking that way. They're quick to go, oh, I'm not proud. Oh, I'm the most humble person around. Well, right away, you've just kind of ruined it, right? We get deceived by our own pride, thinking ourselves to be more than we are or more spiritual than we are. And this is what the word says, Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So you see, after Paul's great revelation of heaven, 
it, it would have been very easy for him to have become prideful, having received such a, a glorious revelation, this encounter and experience with the Lord in the heavens. He could have, you know, begun to go on tour, write a book, sign autographs. He could have presented an incredible, you know, Greek theatrical presentation of that whole experience and really, again, promoted himself through that. But things went in a very different direction for Paul. Paul learned what it meant to truly live a humble life and the means necessary to walk in humility. John Ruskin has said, I believe that the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not mean by humility, doubt of his own power, but really great people have a curious feeling that the greatness is not in them, but through them. And they see something divine in others and are endlessly, foolishly, incredibly merciful. That's what Paul was experiencing here and beginning to, was moving in, no doubt. Humility, it's been said, is something that we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. It's something that we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. Because the minute you pray, Lord, thank you for making me so humble, <laughs> you've lost it. Well, let's look at how this all played out for Paul. We read again in verse seven. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Again, if anybody had reason to boast or be prideful, it was Paul. Paul could have had a, a, a very easy propensity for pride because notice he says he's had an abundance of revelations this is something that the false apostles had come into church and begun to boast in oh we've got visions we got revelations paul says well listen you want to talk about visions and revelations let me share with you and paul shared this incredible encounter in chapter 12 of this being taken up to heaven but paul doesn't just refer to that he says listen i've had the abundance of the revelations plural He's had many more encounters where the Lord has spoken to him very specifically and very personally. Paul's seen much, he's heard much, he's experienced much. He's got reason to boast. He knows this could cause him to feel exalted above others. He has a propensity for pride. C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things or people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If you're always looking down on people, you're failing to see what is ultimately above you. So to help Paul have a proper balanced view of life, look at what God does. He allows some difficulty to come his way. Now you might think, wait a second, that seems so cruel. Why can't we have a life of consistently good things? I mean, when I committed my life to you, Lord, wasn't I signing up to have everything just taken care of for me to be comfortable and held and just, you know, rocked to sleep at night? Like, wasn't everything to be good now that I've committed my life to you? Now, as much as I would love to have that, there's something to be said about the lessons learned and the godly character that is built in us through suffering. And the Bible talks about that. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, write down Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Write down James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Look those up on your own because those, again, back up the purpose 
or the outcome of suffering. But as we look at our passage here today, notice a couple things with me here. First of all, notice what Paul says. A thorn in the flesh was given to me right there in verse seven. It was given to him. As though Paul received this as a gift. Paul didn't see this thorn as some kind of a, a curse, something to try to push away and, and, and reject. He didn't fight against it or curse it. He saw it as something given to him by God. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. But notice he says, it was also a messenger of Satan. A messenger of Satan was used in this. Now, here's an important thing to understand and I want you to really track with me and grasp this here. God is in control of all. And God is in control of Satan. Satan cannot do anything unless God gives him permission and allowance to do so. We see a similar account in the book of Job. When Satan comes along with all the other angels into the presence of God, and God's like, Satan, what's been going on? I've just been roaming through the earth looking for trouble. And God's like, huh, have you thought about Job? I mean, can you imagine Job if he heard this? Like, God, what do you mean? You're, you're throwing me under the bus here. What are, you, what are you picking on me for? Take one of these other guys. And God's like, hey, what about this? And then God says, you may, and, and Job's like, it's only because he has got all this blessing and abundance that he's, he's following you. God says, well, you know what? Take some of that away, see what happens. And God, God permits Satan to do this work in Job's life, but with restrictions. God's in control. Satan cannot do anything unless God allows him. And that's important for us to know because we don't have to run around and think that every difficulty now is a result of a satanic attack. As sometimes we can think, oh, I'm going through this. This is Satan. We got to pray for deliverance against that. Wait a second. Do we ever go, hey, God, what is it that you want me to learn from this? Again, I said it so many times, but we're so quick to pray, God, get me out of this, rather than praying, God, what do you want me to get out of this? Because God oftentimes has a greater purpose in all of these things that are happening in our lives that we think are just a result of evil and wickedness and an attack of Satan. Now we think, as long as we fight against Satan and we just really do our best to counter that, then we're gonna get delivered, rather than thinking, God, maybe you're doing this and allowing this for a greater purpose. Oh, God doesn't bring suffering in our lives, but he will use suffering to bring about a greater good in our lives. God turns it around and works it for our good. And, and, and it's amazing, you'd think Satan would eventually kind of get onto this a little bit. Like everything Satan does, he's like, oh, I'm gonna get him now. And God's like, oh, me in for a surprise here. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna work. I'm going to overrule in this. And you think Satan would get onto this and finally just be like, that's it, I give up. But he's like the little brother, right, that is always like trying to fight against the big brother. And, and when the big brother, you know, taunts him and annoys him, the, the little brother just goes into a rage. He's like, Rah! he just starts freaking out, trying to take down the bigger brother, but he just gets swallowed instead. And yet in his rage, he just keeps coming back for more because he's blinded to know and see what the inevitable outcome is. And that's kind of Satan. He's in a rage, deceived by his own pride, and he keeps trying to 
fulfill his purposes, and yet God works it all and uses it to fulfill his purposes. So understand that the Lord allows the enemy at times to bring affliction upon us, but it's not to hurt us. God uses that affliction to bring about a greater purpose in us. Sometimes, yeah, it's to, it's to break us. Maybe it's to refine us, mold us and strengthen us by seeing our need all the more for the Lord, but God uses it for his purposes. We don't always understand why God does what he does, but the whole lesson in the book of Job was that God is sovereign. And we don't have to know why God does. In fact, all through the book of Job, there's the, the friends of Job come to him saying, well, Job, just, I mean, admit your sin, just repent. It's gotta be sin that's causing you to suffer like this. And yet it wasn't sin, it was that God was doing a work to show God was worthy to be praised in and through it all. And at the very end of the book, guess what? God never revealed to Job what God was ultimately doing. It would have been, it would have been so nice, wouldn't it, for Job at the end of the book to go, for God to go, Job, here's what you didn't see that was happening behind the scenes. Satan came with a little challenge thinking that you're only living this way because of all your blessing. So I allowed him to remove some of that to show that no, you're still gonna worship me because you know that it's only me that there's life and blessing and peace. And, and God could have revealed all that to Job, but he didn't. And there are times where we won't have the answers, but what we're called to do is simply turn to the Lord in faith and trust and go, God, you're sovereign, your, your purposes will always prevail, and I know that you work all things for the good. And that I can hold on to. God has a purpose for everything we go through. And, and when we have that understanding, we'll be more prone to praise him rather than pout and whine over difficulty. Well, look at what Paul says here. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, what was this thorn? Some have given many you know, suggestions. It's been suggested that maybe this is a temptation, a kind of a, a, of a spiritual nature, that there was a real, you know, grabbing of his carnal nature that Paul had to wrestle with and, and fight and resist against. Some say it was the opposition that he faced and the persecution that we read of in chapter 11 in verses 24, 25, 26, 27, that Paul went through that big list of all that he's had to endure. Some believe that's the thorn that he had to experience. Some say it was epilepsy that he suffered with. Some think it may have been a chronic fever common in that day, like uh, malaria or, or Malta fever. Now, common belief was maybe that he suffered from an eye injury, an eye problem that caused him to really have great and, and uh, painful headaches. Now, without being able to know for sure and without saying, you know, with certainty that this was it, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. It's possible this was an injury caused by the stoning he received in, in Lystra when they dragged him out, thinking him to be dead. We know in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, he said, I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And at the end of the letter in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. And some believe that, you know, they were willing to give his eyes because Paul had a situation with his eyes that created great discomfort and, and problem perhaps from the stoning. Listen, ultimately, we don't know. Those are just possibilities that we bring up. But I think it's for our good that we don't know and we're left with the thought that it could have been anything. Why, why so? 
because now we can't discount Paul's problem or think, well, this doesn't really relate or is applicable to my situation. Paul's thorn in the flesh was very different than my thorn in the flesh. We don't know what he went through, but what we do know is that it created problems. It created pain. It created discomfort by which he needed to lean in and press into the Lord. And so we're left with the reality that whatever we're going through, we need to apply that same principle and say, Lord, I need to press in to you. See, to keep Paul grounded after flying in the heavens, God allowed this thorn to buffet him. And as nice of a word as what you might read, buffet, as nice of a word as that might be, think long tables of food, you know. What this means is to, to beat or strike with the fist. So this was not just some kind of like, you know, pushing, a little bit of prodding, being bumped here and there. This was something that was a very difficult thing. This, this hit Paul hard. And notice he says it was a thorn in the flesh. Now that's the Greek word, scallops. And it's the only time this Greek word is used in, in scripture. So it's a different word than is used when it speaks about maybe the, the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head or, you know, thorns that grew up in the, in the, in the weeds or the, the bushes, you know, in various uh, parables given. It's a different word here. And this word ultimately means uh, it means like a, a, uh, a pointed piece of wood or a tent stake. So this is not just a little prickle that sometimes you might get caught in your shoe and it creates a bit of an irritant. It's like, oh man, that's kind of, I'll deal with that later. I'll get that later. And you just say, oh, I'll bear, you know, with it right now. I don't want to take my shoe. It's not just a little prickle he felt. This is like a, a tense stake that was driving through and just causing like this kind of excruciating pain. And notice what Paul says in verse eight. He says, concerning this thing, this scallops, this, this driving pressure, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Even though this is a very heavy thing that Paul experienced, he wasn't putting on some kind of stoic phoniness and trying to act tough through it. Oh, it's all right. I can deal with this. This is no problem. No, he pleaded with the Lord for this discomfort to be taken from him. And you see, it's in that process of turning to the Lord and seeking his help that we find comfort and are strengthened in that and we recognize that there are times where we need to be reminded of our weakness so we can come to know God's strength all the more. Paul pleaded with the Lord. He desired this to be gone. Now this flies in the face too, doesn't it, of what many prosperity preachers would preach about how we should never be sick. We should never go through suffering because God wants us to be prosperous and blessed and just live the abundant life. Oh, we have the abundant life in Jesus, no doubt. We're the promise of eternity. That is what we're, we're promised, we're blessed, but we're never promised that we're going to have an easy journey in this world because this is not our home. This world is not 
a friend to the follower of Jesus. We're not promised to go through comfort and ease, but we're promised that the Lord is going to get us through and get us to the other side, to our eternal home in heaven and in the presence of the Lord forever. That's what we're promised. This verse is not a verse that prosperity preachers would like to see in the Bible. They'll skip over this. They don't like this. But you see, it's in this process that Paul heard one of the more encouraging things that would have moved him along with perseverance in ministry. And notice it's not that, you know, we pray three times and leave it at that. No, we're, we're called to be persistent in prayer. But why did Paul stop after three times? Because the Lord answered. The Lord gave him the answer. What's that answer? It's right here in verse nine. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See what comforting and encouraging words these must have been. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm sure Paul had to remind himself of these time after time. Paul's put in prison. Oh, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul's shipwrecked. Oh, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul's beaten with rods. My, my grace is sufficient for you. Now you may be asking, grace? Grace? How is that going to help in the midst of pain and suffering? Healing, I can imagine that's going to be helpful. A deliverance out of that, that I'll take. But grace? What's grace going to do? Is that like giving someone a bicycle that wants to get from Vancouver to Paris? Here you go, that should help. Really, no, that doesn't help. And we can think that way about grace. How is this going to help? Well, let's look at what this word grace is all about and what's being referenced here. Because grace is the Greek word charis. And it means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, and charm, loveliness. It's grace of speech. It's goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. We know grace is oftentimes defined as getting what we don't deserve. Now, we know we've received that in salvation. We didn't deserve God's salvation, but by his grace, it's not something we, we worked for or earned. It was given to us and given to us freely. We got something we didn't deserve. Paul listed a number of things in chapter 11 that he got, which maybe he didn't really deserve, but in the midst of all the, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the, the perils uh, that he went through, he began to see that grace was afforded him that he could, in the midst of it all, have a joy and a peace and a delight because the Lord was with him. Through each episode, it allowed him to see Jesus more clearly. See, Paul began to realize that what he really needs on a day-to-day -day basis is just Jesus. Just Jesus. See, we all know God could have removed that thorn easily. God could have said, okay, Paul, yeah, I think you've, you know, suffered enough. I'm going to remove that. God could have easily have done that. But God wanted to do something better through it. What Paul needed most was to experience the strength and power of God that was now at work in his life, available for him. And the way to experience that strength of the Lord is ultimately to remain 
in a place of weakness. How interesting. That's why Jesus further said there in verse nine, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now that can sound like a bit of an oxymoron. You're like, wait a second, that doesn't add up. Those things don't really, strength made perfect in, in weakness. No, there's no strength in weakness. These things don't come, how does that work? They're, they're incompatible. But you see, in the Lord's economy, this is perfectly compatible. Because Paul saw in his weakness that there was nothing in himself to depend on or rely on and that he simply needed Jesus. It was in weakness and despair that Paul saw all the more there was nothing of himself to hold on to and help him, but rather he needed to hold on to Jesus, that Jesus would be his help and that God's grace was sufficient. And you see, the Lord will let us struggle and fight and try to help ourselves. When we find ourselves in a pit, we oftentimes think, I got to get myself out of here. I got to claw my way out. I got to do something to fix this situation. And the Lord will let us go about doing all that work. But the moment we cry out to him and say, Lord, I have nothing. I need you. Then the Lord's strength becomes manifest. Then the Lord allows himself and shows himself strong on our behalf. Thomas Constable said this, this is one of the most important lessons every ambassador of Jesus Christ must learn. Both natural weakness and supernatural power are constantly at work in us as they were in Paul and in Jesus. The cross is the greatest example of divine power working through human weakness. The greater we sense our weakness, the more we will sense God's power. Someone has said that Christians live on promises, not explanations. That's one of the greatest promises that God has given us to live on, or this is one of the greatest promises. Right here, that in our weakness, his strength is shown. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And we don't need explanations for what we're going through or why we're going through things, what God has planned, why God's on. We don't need explanations. We just need promises and, and hold on to those promises and say, Lord, in spite of what I'm dealing with, regardless of what I'm going through, here's what I know, is that when I'm weak, you are strong. And I fail to see your strength because I think I'm strong. I think I can get through this. I think I can handle this. And I fail to see your strength because I'm trying to rely on my strength. But the moment I see my weakness, the moment I recognize I can't do it, I go, Lord, I need something greater than me. I need your strength. And that's when his strength is shown. Notice the Lord says to us there, and I love this. He says, my grace. It, this isn't grace in and of ourselves. This isn't a grace. And we're all called to walk in grace. We're all called to demonstrate grace to one another. Yes, there's to be a grace within us, but this grace that is being talked about is not a grace that comes from us. It's his grace that is shown to us. And it's his grace that strengthens us. It's this grace, this charis, this gift that's given to us that affords us this strength and joy. But notice this, and I like this, my grace is. And that's written in the present active 
tense, meaning that this is readily available. This isn't something that Paul had to work for or wait for. This is something that God says, it is right now available to you. Are you walking in that? Are you receiving that? Are you taking this for yourself? Or are you still trying to depend on the means that you have in and of yourself by which you'll always fall short? Rather, turn to the Lord because his grace is right now readily available to you. Are you walking that grace? Whatever problem you might be encountering, whatever pain and suffering you might be in right now, have you recognized that his grace is the only thing that we have to rely on to help us through, and it's right now available for you? And it is, guess what? Sufficient. It is enough. It's not my grace plus this and that. It's my grace alone is sufficient. It's enough for you to carry you through and to carry you through with a, a, a joy and a, and a resolve and a strength outside of yourself to recognize that he's with you and he's gonna, he's gonna lead you through. He's not gonna forsake you. He's not gonna let you go. God wants you to know that his grace is enough to carry you through in his strength. Paul has come to know that personally and experientially. And that's why he says, notice this, this is why he says, most gladly, oh man, I'll rather boast in my infirmities. Most gladly, I'll boast in my infirmities, where, where he's writing to counter all these false apostles that were boasting in their own accolades and in their strength and trying to say, look at what Paul's had to go through. This guy's gone through the ringer. He's weak. He's not authority. You can't trust this guy. Paul says, no, I'm going to boast in those weaknesses. I'm going to gladly boast in those things because it's when I've gone through those weaknesses that I've experienced in a greater way the strength of the Lord, by which we should constantly always be relying on and not of ourselves. Paul's gone from paradise to pain, from exaltation to affliction. But either way, it provided the means to see Jesus more clearly. And that, for Paul, is a win. There was a, a plaque that was written by a Confederate soldier, and it said this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I'd hoped for. I'm among the most blessed of men. That was the attitude of Paul, wasn't it? Didn't get what he asked for, but he realized, I got a whole lot more. Because I've come to know Jesus in a greater way. And I've come to know what he provides for me in my time of need, to where Paul could view this as a gift rather than a curse. Paul came to know that everything he was given was not always what he asked for, but it was always the better thing. The Lord doesn't always give us exactly what we ask for in the way that we ask for it, but he gives us oftentimes something better. When I prayed for patience, 
the Lord gave me four kids. It's not the way that I was expecting patience, but I came to grow in patience. The Lord gave me a better way to experience patience. See, when we learn to accept our trials and sufferings as, as opportunities to press into the Lord and see his strength at work, then we can rejoice in our weaknesses. That's what, what Paul speaks of next. Look at verse 10. Therefore, again, he says, I take pleasure. He's gladly boasting in infirmities, but now he takes pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, you could read this and think, this sounds like somebody that's just completely got a, a demented way of thinking. You're, you're taking pleasure in infirmities? That that's, doesn't sound healthy. But Paul knew that whatever trial he had to walk through, it was an opportunity to see God do greater things than he could ever do on his own. That's why he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, because it's in my weakness that Christ's strength is manifest, and I, I wouldn't experience that strength on my own. So I'm going to take pleasure in, in, in infirmities and persecutions and in all the distresses because it, that brings me low so that Christ can now strengthen me. It says in verse 11, as we continue on, I've become a fool in boasting. You compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Again, Paul comes back to this kind of foolishness of boasting. He doesn't like having to try to prop himself up in any way. That's why he's rather boasting in, in weaknesses. Any kind of boasting in self, he goes, that's just foolishness. It's not the way of the Lord. It's not the way of the follower of Christ. He hates having to talk this way, but he knows that he needs to counter the false apostles and allow the believers at Corinth to see his genuineness. And notice Paul's attitude, though I'm nothing. I wasn't behind the most eminent apostles. And again, kind of sarcastically, like the church was, or the, those false apostles themselves were elevating themselves as they were just so awesome. Paul says, ah, I wasn't behind them anyway, even though I'm nothing, right? Paul continually walked in humility and put himself down. And if Paul can make a statement like that, how much more should we be living with that same kind of attitude? Philippians 2 verse 3 says, don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other consider or let each esteem others better than himself. That's humility. Some would define humility as not thinking less of yourself, but just not thinking of self. That's true. Genuine humility. Lastly, verse 12 and 13. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is, uh, what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. So the church is founded upon the signs that the Lord worked through the apostles, the genuine apostles to authenticate their ministry. Paul says, we came to all these things. You, you as a church were not inferior to any other churches except for this one thing. I didn't come and be a burden to you. So Paul facetiously says, forgive me this wrong. Next time, I'll be a little bit more harder on you. I'll be a bit more of a burden to you. He didn't take any support from them or offering from them. And he's like, okay, you're on an offering? Take up an offering. I'm sure as this is being read out in the church of Corinth, somebody's saying, who's the dummy that talked about this being something we need to do? Now we've got to take up an offering for him, right? But this is Paul just kind of sarcastically, jokingly with them saying, I came to you humbly. I didn't make it about me. I didn't ask anything of you. I came to give. 
and I came in weakness so that it would be a demonstration of Christ's power ultimately. Worship team, I'm gonna ask you to come. We're gonna close with just a, a short song here today. But let me just tie it in with a few application points here for us. First of all, our prickly problems in life don't need to be viewed as curses to be removed, but rather blessings to be received as we learn to lean more heavily on Jesus. Our sicknesses are not always a product of sin. Sometimes they're an allowance of God to produce a greater purpose in us. Ultimately, God is in control, allowing all things. Let us ask, Lord, don't just get me out of this. What do you want me to get out of this? Thirdly, rejoicing in your strength leads to pride and an inevitable downfall. Rejoicing in your weakness is the path of humility and being more greatly used of God as you rely more on the strength provided for you from him that goes beyond you and is exercised in a way all for the glory of God, which is what we're all to be about. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word to receive these incredible truths and, and promises. Lord, that in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. Help us, Lord, to walk in humility, to die to self and recognize we need you. We can't make it on our own. We Forgive us when we try to rely upon our strength, Lord. Let us stop. Let us rather turn to you and rely upon your strength that is more than enough. Your grace is sufficient. May we not doubt that, but lean heavily on that truth and press in all the more with you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.